Hello and welcome to the Power by Rock podcast, where we're speaking with a veritable music-making machine, whether he's pumping out hits and getting Grammys with the Black Eyed Peas, or whether he's going hard in his hard rock band Cairo Knife Fight. George Pahone Jr. is a highly respected musician with a ton of credits to his storied career. You may not recognize him, but you will definitely recognize a lot of the music he has put out over the years, including writing and playing on hits like uh, playing on hits with the likes of Sting, Santana, John Legend, Ricky Martin, Macy Gray, Fergie, and obviously the Black, Black Eyed Peas, among others. You'll not want to miss hearing all the stories this man has got up his sleeves. He's the first Grammy winner, Emmy winner, and BMI winner to be on our show. The man co-wrote Barack Obama's "Yes We Can" campaign for crying out uh, song for crying out loud. We'll get we'll dig into the mind of this musical madman right after this. You're listening to the Powered by Rock podcast with your host Isaac Kuhlman. The Powered by Rock podcast was created to help showcase some of the best rock musicians in the world and to pass on to future generations the rock music that has inspired rock fans around the world for decades. We want listeners to be able to hear great stories and life experiences directly from their favorite artists, as well as dig deeper into music theory and talk rock like no other show you've ever heard. This isn't about looking cool, it's about getting real and having a great time. Without further ado, let's start the show. All right. Hello and welcome to the Powered by Rock podcast. Today is going to be a pretty big day as it's not every show that you get a chance to speak to such an accomplished musician as our guest today. George is a highly decorated guitarist, has worked with some of the biggest names in music over the past 30 years or so. If it wasn't for meeting him in a bar randomly here in Las Vegas and having a short conversation with him, I probably wouldn't even realize how awesome he truly is. So thanks, George. Welcome to the show and thanks for taking the time. (laughs) Thanks for having me and I'll apologize on air for missing it twice. (laughs) <laughs> yeah we had to reschedule a couple times georgia yeah. georgia apparently is a later sleeper than i am and uh the, the early mornings uh podcasts don't work out as well <laughs> that's, that's an understatement yeah <laughs> so i have a feeling like myself most people wouldn't recognize you if you were walking down the street yet you've been pretty successful in the music industry for quite a long time so do you feel like you kind of get the best of both worlds and that you can kind of keep your personal identity but still get to be successful as an artist and producer Ironically, that was the way it was for probably all the way up to COVID. So right when COVID shut everything down, my wife, um, you know, one of the things that I said um, was, man, the little things like, where am I going to get my hair cut? And I always get a shave. She's like, let it grow. Let's see what happens. This happened during COVID. And now I don't get the anonymity anymore because the minute i get off the stage they recognize the beard yeah things and so i get swamped and used to be we i'd leave a soccer stadium that we just played with the peas and we'd be rolling out in the car the band no one recognized us no big deal yeah they're jumping out of their cars and stopping the car and we have to (laughs) actually do the the private exit with them that's funny and a few times I've had to like actually cover it with a towel <laughs> or sit in the back. And, you know, so I used to get uh, best of both worlds because um, I'm, I'm, I've been very lucky and very successful. And I'd be able to walk in the stadium right after I played and no one recognized me. Yeah. So how's that kind of changed for you? Does it does it make any difference as to like your day to day life now, or do you just kind of in a normal situation it's fine? But as long as you're like when you're getting off stage, is kind of when you're most recognizable. 
um, day to day doesn't change, but it is right off the, the stage. Like we just played T-Mobile for iHeart Music Festival. Yep. So I had a bunch of friends that were at the um, barbershop at Cosmo. So I literally walked to the barbershop and took the tram and it was a nightmare just doing that. <laughs> and it's like, if you live in Vegas, you know how the barbershop is not close to T-Mobile. No, it's it's a good so, fifteen minute walk or so or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I was still getting recognized at the barbershop at Cosmo, and my bandmate Nick was that was the first time he'd see me perform live with the Peas. Yeah, and he's like, "Dude, you deal with this every day? <laughs> like, <laughs> every day that I if it's very easy to not deal with because all you have to do is not, you know." be like a normal person and walk out of the stadium and decide, yeah. oh, not, go to a bar across the street. If you don't do that, nothing, nothing changes. Yeah. If you do that now because they can recognize the beard, then you're going to be taking a lot of pictures. You're going to be asking a lot of questions and getting a lot <laughs> of shots being offered to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, <laughs> I bought you a beer at the bar that we were at, but, uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I'm, I haven't been a huge pop music fan or anything. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but, um, would, you know, I don't, I didn't even know until I started like looking more into like, your background that, you know, there was a band I assumed like most pop yeah. and hip hop artists and stuff like that. They just had backing tracks or maybe had a live band, but, might have changed over the years, but you've been there the whole time. So, I mean, you've been creating music in every genre, pretty much, whether it be like your funk jazz fusion solo album, fried yeah. plantains from about 18, 20 years ago, or, you know, the heavy industrial uh, rock kind of style of Cairo knife fight. But, you know, do you feel like when you have to work with some of these, I mean, you've, again, you've worked pop rock, pop, all this other stuff. When yeah. you work in these kinds of things, do you feel like you have to compartmentalize your playing or do you have to kind of, do you, do you just take what you know and then put that into that song and see if it works? Or is it is it different styles of playing when you go into everything? I, I'm kind of a, I mean, you can, I call myself an ignorant musician. I didn't go to school. I don't know how to read or write music. Yeah. Most of the time, I, I don't even know the, the chords. I create a lot of weird things based on my, uh, deficiencies yeah and that's what has created situations for me and uh, a bunch of times I've been so frustrated that I threatened to like stop and go back to school and a lot of people that have worked with me in the past will tell me don't you dare that's what makes you special is that yeah. you don't know what's going on and you take risks that I wouldn't take because I I have a roadmap anytime that an educated musician that is, you know, either has perfect pitch or relative pitch or just knows what they are taking from. Yeah. They're not searching the way that I search. And I sometimes yeah. search to the point where I create a mistake that is cooler than something that should work. Yeah. And I, I basically, that has been my formula for everything, whether I'm in the studio with Sting or in the studio with Carl Santana. When Carl Santana saw me do that, when we I wrote with him for the album after Supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking like early 2000s roughly or yeah. late? Yeah. Yeah, he he came, um, this is when Where's the Love, a song I, I, uh, I co-wrote yeah. 
was nom was nominated for a Grammy. And so we played at the Grammys. This is the first year we played at the Grammys. And Carlos was there with his uh, daughters, his whole family. And he asked Will and I to fly us to San Francisco to write on his record. So we did. And so when he watched my process in the studio with Will, he stopped everything. I was like, wait, wait, you have that thing. And I'm, I'm like, oh, did I do something wrong? Yeah. And he's like, you literally are putting the guitar up to your ear and you're searching he's like so you don't know what's going on and and you're just an antenna for whatever's out in the atmosphere and you just yeah. allow that stuff to filter through you so i've only seen that a couple times in my life and so we had a long extensive conversation about that and and you know the funny thing is is that he's kind of the same way he has a lot more musical knowledge but the way he was writing his solo that he played on that song, he was using a basic scale. So, and his thing is he writes do, re, mi, fa, and he'll write different versions of that on a piece of paper. Yeah. And that's how he maps out where he's going to go with the solos. And he'll, he'll be walking around uh, the studio singing those combinations and then writes it down a piece of paper. And it's literally a napkin that says re, do, fa, do, re. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, that's amazing. So I connected with him on that level. And and he explained to me, another person, I was like, don't you ever change that. That's You're actually allowing whatever's in, out there to be funneled through you. Yeah. And, and as frustrating as it may be, you're not relying on book knowledge. You're not relying on, oh, this is a minor chord, so I can, and then there's a million possibilities that you can do there. Yeah. You don't have that. You're not hindered by that. Most people get hindered by that because they're like, oh, I know what I'm going to do here. Boom. And then it always yeah. sounds the same. It always is formulaic. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about like, hey, you're in the key of C, so you're going to be playing this scale. And so yeah. it's like, yeah, when, when you see that kind of stuff, you're like, well, yeah, but then what like there's got to be more than just one thing that you can do obviously there's a million but they're all like you know mixolydian dory and all this other yeah. stuff and you're like that gets a little complicated and yeah you're right i mean i've seen you know there's the the truly revolutionary guitar players are the guys that kind of just like a oh, jimmy hendrix just don't care about all that stuff and just play whatever's coming to them and it sounds good well some i'll give you a perfect example we uh will called me to, to uh, go to the record plant in LA and I misunderstood when he sent me the text, I thought he was asking me to uh, go right with Cheryl Crow. I got really excited, but it's Cheryl Cole. Okay. And in the UK, there's the Cheryl Cole, C-O-L-E. Yeah. Yep. That's huge. Pretty big over there. Yeah. Huge in Europe. And um, so I didn't know who she was when I walked in, I was like, I have no idea who this is, but doesn't matter. You just sit down and Will text me and said, I'm going to, I'm in the middle of you know, an argument. I'm going to be late. So just start writing with her. So it was literally just me and her. And um, I was in the control room. And so I just set up a, a session and started working ideas with her. And she liked this one pattern that I was doing on the guitar. And she's like, can you repeat that? And so because I've been playing so long, it, it's so funny. I I get corporal tunnel on the most basic chords, like a yeah. bar chord. 
a yeah. basic like Jeep R chord, I can only hold that for maybe a minute and then this starts getting completely numb and everything. So many times in the studio when an artist is saying, just repeat that over and over again, I'll start to open tune my guitar because I can't hold the bar chord. Yeah. That song, I, I had to do that because when Will came in and we were working on this idea, then he was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Stay right there. And so as I kept repeating it, I would just lower the, the pitch on the top string so I wouldn't have to hold the bar chord anymore. Yeah. It turned out to be this crazy tuning on that song. The song is called uh, Three Words. It ended up going number one in Europe and the UK. And I could never replay that song because I don't remember what the tune is. <laughs> yeah. so no, it's like started. four steps down, but I only know because it's like three minutes into me being in, yeah. in incredible pain. <laughs> there, um, the guitar player that was touring with her, he called me and got my number and he's like, man, what tuning is this? I can't figure this thing out. I'm like, man, I, you tell me when you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those on the you know guitar tabs, ultimateguitartabs.com or whatever. They're like, we don't know how to process this one. You're never going to get it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because one of the other songs that I uh, was lucky to co-write was Let's Get It Started. And I really played probably the most common um, rock chord if you're playing like ACDC or anything. It's just a, a, a sus2 chord. Yeah. No one ever, when I see cover bands play that, when I, you know, when it was big all over the world and we were touring everywhere that I remember we played Singapore and there's this area, uh, the street on Singapore that's a, a couple miles long and it's nothing but bars. Yeah. So every other bar had a cover band playing that song. And yeah. I literally saw 12 cover bands that night playing that song wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, you're supposed to put a pinky over here. <laughs> no, they're, they're supposed to leave the top two strings open. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's playing the straight bar chord. And I, and it's funny to me because it's like one of those things like for me, it's just this common chord that I play all the time over everything. Yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I didn't care. I would just put it in there because to me, it sounded like a way bigger voice. Yeah. And um, I got it on. Most of the time, Will will say, play something more straight, more straight. He doesn't like real open voicings for that song. For some reason, he didn't change it. Yeah. And and it stayed in there. And so I see that song being played wrong all the time. Yeah. Well, and for most people's ear, they don't notice out of six notes being played. They don't notice two that are wrong. Right. So it's like they'll hear the main overarching sound but they won't hear the subtle difference of the couple couple notes that are played wrong that's one of that's one of the things that i do all the time that most like uh the musical director in the band keith harris he um <clears throat> he has told me many times you know that's technically wrong yeah like <laughs> but it sounds right in your head and it actually sounds really interesting when you put those two together not supposed to work together uh, yeah. this, that chord with the major chord that's supposed to be not supposed to work together it's like but it's kind of your voicing yeah like, i mean if you probably did it with piano and violin it would sound really weird but with a guitar it sound with like some distortion it sounds just fine yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's those things that, like I said, it happened by accident and yeah. it's, it's out of frustration because um, I've been playing a long time and I was, a, I've been a student of many different genres over my, you know, from when I was a kid, you know, one of the hardest questions that people ask me is, you know, that the question that's being asked a lot on podcasts right now and interviews is what's the, your first musical um, experience? Like what got you going into deciding you're going to be a musician? Yeah. That's difficult for me. Cause I, I did it in stages. Like, you know, I went through being, I started by, you know, my favorite band was Maiden when I was a kid, Maiden Sabbath, you know, the, the typical heavy rock stuff. And then my uncle came and dropped off, took all my albums and dropped off a bunch of albums that had Hendrix and, and yeah. you know, Cream and Santana in there. And so I became obsessed with the 60s. And that's all I listened to. And then after that, I was dating a, an older girl that had a stack of classic R&B records like Marvin Gaye's um, um, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye's... Yeah. Um, the album right after that one. Uh, and as I sat there and was just obsessed with that genre. So like two, for two years, I just like studied that genre for everyone yeah. from Curtis Mayfield to <clears throat> Marvin Gaye to, you know, Stevie Wonder, all that's all I listened to. And I didn't realize that by doing that, that was creating this vast musical knowledge <clears throat> of things that were inspiring me in different ways. Yeah. And it, <clears throat> it wasn't common for someone to say, Oh, I'm going to stop listening to rock for two years and just listen to this and yeah. only buy these records. And then I'm going to stop that and listen to country for this. And so when it was time to actually start recording and writing how it happened for me. So I, I joined the band, I joined the black IPs in October of 19, in October, 1998. And at this point, the first album was already done and, released and they did one small tour without me and the original guitar player and keyboard player quit. Mm -hmm. I joined uh, my roommate at the time and we started, we were only going to do one tour and we actually tried to quit. And Will was like, not having it. He's like, no, that's the best the band's ever sounded. We can't, you can't quit. Yeah. And so we started negotiating with him and, and we reached a, a compromise and, and we stayed for a little while. And then when, when it all changed for me is uh, Will asked me to come into his studio to work on an, the, the singer at the time in the P's was Kim Hill. And she was signed to Will's label and they were working on her first solo album. Yeah. So his normal guitar player uh, couldn't make it. So he called me. I went in there and they were sampling um stairway to heaven okay and i kind of laughed and he's like what what's so funny i was like bro first of all you're not getting clearance on that yeah <laughs> second of all why would you sample that song like you're you got a gun to your head from like the moment you release that yeah get hate from every rock fan in the world and how do you make that song better That's yeah Awesome. Like it's like in Wayne's World when he starts to play it on the in the guitar shop, he's like, "Stop!" and it's like, "No stairway" or whatever. 
it's like you can't play it as good as them so just stop play something else <laughs> so he would he said to me uh, man can you can you play this or not i'm like of course i can play this all right and then i played it like the record and he's like wait you know how to play that kind of music i was like yeah man i know how to play a lot of different types of music and he's like so he's like okay come back tomorrow so i started coming almost every day to his studio and then he would go to the record store and when there was record stores back then yeah and i remember there was a virgin down the street from from his studio and we would go there and he he'd spend like two thousand dollars in buying cds and then he'd go to the studio and he'd put the cd in press play and and skip around to find something that spoke to him sample it and i'd be like why are you sampling that and he's like why what do you mean i was like i can come up with something just like that and then you don't yeah. have to pay someone else and you you get to keep your royalties yeah <laughs> and so he's like okay let me see yeah so I would, because it was like, I mean, I don't know why he, at that point in time, he was sampling a lot of rock music. Yeah. So he was doing well, I think in the 90s, it was kind of, kind of just coming off of like, you know, obviously the 80s had a big push on that with like Run DMC and the Aerosmith thing. Yeah. And then it kind of just stayed in there. I think Dr. Dre and a few other people kind of sampled some rock beats back then. Yeah. And it just was like, it because it, it, you know rock music when it's live it's got that more punchy thing than just like a boop, 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 like a bass beat or whatever live it's different right so i think a lot of people were thinking like let's do rock and combine it with hip-hop but yeah i mean you're right i mean it was like the main thing for a lot of people just to do sample sample samples nobody wanted to come up with their own stuff and that's why they didn't need a band well and that's what my voice in the peas was from that moment people yeah. ask me oh i'd when they see Cairo and I fight my band, they the most common thing is like, I didn't know you can play like this. Yeah, like, That's how I always played. I never grew up listening to hip hop. Will didn't want me to be a hip hop head. Will wanted my knowledge of different forms of music. Yeah. So he would play me something and say, come up with something like that. And that wasn't, to me, it wasn't like, oh, that's a C major to, you know, it, that what I remember is what I learned growing up. Oh, I know yeah. what that is. I know how to play like that. I know how to play in that flavor. Yeah. That's all I was doing. So I never changed who I was to be in that band. It was luck that I was what he was hearing in his head at the point at that point in time. And which is why I don't do much. Uh, I have a song on the new record that is yet to be released that we recorded in uh in london while on tour for 11 weeks and before that i haven't been on the last two records because will's very much into electronic music sure now, he doesn't guitar in his head right now is a bad word yeah it's dead. Other, <laughs> other than having me on stage because i even the the fact that i'm still there is because it's it's a comfort thing for him yeah, you know, I've been there so long that he doesn't have to look my side of the stage. He don't even have to communicate with me. I know where he's going, and I'll just go right to that. When he starts talking, I start creating live on stage. Yeah, they've tried many different guitar players because I, I, when I'm busy doing my thing, or there's a conflict in dates, they have to get a sub. 
it never works out because there's no way to replace the fact that I've seen everything, heard yeah. everything, been involved in every mistake, every success. And so I know where he's going. Yeah. I recognize what he wants to do right here. And for him, that's irreplaceable. When he wants yeah. to start talking, he wants people to immediately react and start coming up with a vibe behind him. Yeah. Most people can will recognize that, but then that vibe is wrong in his head. Because yeah. like, no, no, that's not what George used to do this thing. What Keith, what what is it that he does? What kind of course <laughs> what kind of and it's like, bro, only George does that. He's <laughs> like, trust me. Yeah. I've shown guitar players live shows, everything. It's his head, man. It's where he goes in his head, and no one else does that. It's yeah. not anything special. I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's just 24 years of relationships. Yeah. That leads to what comes out of me naturally when we're on stage together. Yeah, That's irreplaceable. You cannot teach that. You cannot show someone how to recognize that will wants me to go you know to a song that we did you know as a remix on a sting album in <laughs> you know 2000 you know and it's like those chords always work they always he loves them when i play them everyone goes nuts in the band because we haven't heard it in like five ten years yeah it's funny on on the, the tour we just did we did 11 weeks in europe it's the longest tour we've done um obviously because of COVID, but even before COVID, we weren't doing tours of that length. Yeah. So while we were on that, I was like, I'm going to mess with them every night. So I would, <laughs> I would learn old, old songs and just play the chords. And then it would create this craziness on stage. And then we'll be like, Oh, keep that going. Keep that going. And yeah. at a certain amount of time that we would play, we'd go over every night. <laughs> <laughs> Because you get you just put a 12 minute ad lib in there, okay? Yeah, literally. <laughs> like, Will, when he hears something that he remembers, he gets excited and starts just freestyling. And he'll yeah. freestyle a rap right on the spot about what's going on in the audience. The audience, of course, loves that. Yeah. And I was doing that every night to the point where, you know, we started getting scolded. Like, bro, you got, you, you're going over every night. We're getting charged. Because uh, some venues will charge you if you go over. There's yeah. There's certain venues that have hard outs. And those what what that means is they have a curfew. Yeah. You go a minute over, they're charging you sometimes ten thousand dollars a minute. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I hope it was worth it. Maybe you got that for a documentary and recoup some of those tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> will usually is like, I don't care, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's when the stage manager, production manager, everyone's like, all right. He yeah. it. <laughs> <Keep> going. <laughs> well, I do want to talk about some of the stuff because obviously yeah. your you, the music career you have is varied. So I want to start with just first, let's talk about the Black Eyed Peas because, you know, you've won a Grammy or multiple Grammys uh, for like example. Like I don't listen to pop music, but it's hard to avoid certain songs and certain artists and certain genres when they're super you know famous. Like the song Don't Funk With My Heart. Like just reading that title, title gets that song stuck in my head. I like yeah. I that song is now stuck in my head for the next two three hours. I could be doing whatever, and I'm like, and that's just gonna be in there. Do you ever, when you're working on a song, do you ever sit down during the process and think like, oh, I think we got something really cool here, or is it like once it's after after it's done, you're like, hey man, that's that's a, a number one kind of track, or are you kind of just surprised when it happens. 
most of it has been surprised. The only one that I that I knew was Where's the Love? And only reason being is that song when it was done, we uh, the piece switched from being on Interscope to being handled by Ron Fair at Atlantic, still under mm-hmm. the same umbrella, but. Ron Fair took over and Ron Fair put a 30 piece orchestra on Where's the Love. Yeah. I was in the studio listening to that being recorded and I heard the finished product with the orchestra. That's the only time that I was like, this is the number one song. Yeah. And I and I was right about that. Most of the other ones that have been gone to number one, like Don't Funk was was, you know, I was arguing with Will at that time because I had signed a publishing deal and he wasn't happy with the company I went with because it was bigger than his company. So he had to ask permission of the bigger company in order to, you know, if he, Will was his whole career, he still does it to this day. He'll, if there's a movie he wants to be in, he'll go to that director directly and be like, I'll give you this song for basically nothing. Yeah. And the song will be on there. As soon as I signed with a bigger publishing company, then when he would say, "Hey, let's use, let's get it started for this song," they'd be like, "Okay, great, and you only have to pay this." And then EMI would be like, "Nope, 125 grand." And so that started a war between us. And that song, we were in London, and I I didn't have writing on it yet. I had worked on it with him, and then. He literally put me on blast in front of Jimmy Iovine, in front of Ron Fair, in front of like all these music legends. And he's like, okay, Mr. Big Time Writer Guy, come up with something here. And he pressed record. And I came up with the, which Ron then turned that into the whole string section. Yeah. And it was literally instantly. So, of course, that song, I didn't even think anything of it. I'm like, whatever. With you know, I was more thinking about how he was disrespecting me in the moment. <laughs> Didn't think about the music at all. I just played the first thing that came out of my uh, out of my hands. And it ended up on the song. It ended up being the theme of the song. Yeah. And so it's just those things that sometimes you think about it. Like, let's get it started was very simple. We That was written in 20 seconds, basically. Yeah. We'll listen to um, Seven Nation Army when mm-hmm. it was. East, uh, but by Jack White at the White Stripes, and he, and he told the bass player, "We need something like that." And so the bass player was like, "Boom, boom, 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 boom," and I went, "Clang, clang." That was it. Yeah. So, <laughs> you don't think that's going to be a hit? You're like, "Oh, that was fun." Yeah. <laughs> that was it. And we literally that was at rehearsal, and then when we were done rehearsing, Will's like, "Come to my studio, let's put that down." So we all went to his studio. We recorded the first version that's called Let's Get Retarded. That very first version is the one that's on Elephant. Yeah. Then how it turned into Let's Get It Started, which is the one that won the Grammy, is the NBA. Will wanted to pitch a song to the NBA to try to get a song on. Every year they pick a song for the finals. Yeah. And when the the NBA uh, playoffs start, that song is the theme for the whole run of the playoffs. Yeah. But Will pitched them Hands Up. That was another song on, on the record at that time, another song that I co-wrote. And I thought, oh, this is a great idea, Hands Up for the NBA. Yep. 
Well, the NBA said, no, we had our own idea. We were going to call you guys. Do you think you'd change the lyrics from let's get retarded to let's get it started? And we was like, yeah, of course we do that almost nightly. Cause look, let's get retarded. Got a lot of criticism because sure. you had the word retarded in a, in a, in a song title. Yeah. Thus, if you look, if you read the lyrics, it's to retard a musical term to take things slow and pay attention. Let's get retarded. Let's slow things down and enjoy this party. That's what the intentions of the songs. Sure. You can't explain that when there's a whole row of handicapped people in the front row of a stadium. Yeah. You got to change the lyrics of the songs. That's sure. Just, that's just, so we were already saying, let's get it started. And when the NBA. Yeah. And that's funny because I remember that that song being, let's get retarded at first. And I was like, yeah. is that, did it change or did, did I misremember that? Or like, I was just like, I feel like I heard him say that before, but I, you don't ever hear it anymore. So yeah, it makes sense then. Yeah, the NBA had us change it, and so we re-recorded the whole song. We didn't like just do the lyrics, and sure, the, uh, we redid the whole song, <laughs> and then recorded it in London, and that's the one that won the Grammy. Wow! And uh, so it, you you asked earlier. So it's been uh, nine nominations, seven have won. Yeah, which is pretty impressive. I mean. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's won a single Grammy except for you. So that's, that's pretty impressive. And as most people say, you know, Grammys don't matter, but when you win them, you're pretty happy about it. <laughs> they, they do matter. And here's the, the, another thing that most people don't know. Your songs can win Grammys and you get the certificate in the medal, and, but you don't actually get a statue. Yeah. As a musician for only two categories, which really sucks because it, it makes it almost impossible to actually get a statue. Yeah. So my songs that I've written have won seven Grammys, but I don't have a statue because yeah. the only way a musician, a writer gets a statue is if song of the year or record of the year wins. Yep. So I've never gotten song of the year or record of the year, so I don't get a statue. Yeah. That makes People over all the time. They're like, where are your statues? I'm like, <laughs> go, to, go, go talk to the recording music or the recording academy of america <laughs> yeah you can buy it like you can actually buy uh like i don't have the emmy either uh but i can buy it if i want it and i just i just feel like that's cheating yeah yeah like they're so cheap that they can't just give you one <laughs> yeah literally it's it, it you know the world's changed like it used to be even plaques like yeah. i have like probably 30 plaques you don't get those no more you have to actually buy them yeah, that's crazy music is not making the same kind of income that it used to sure and so when a record company at, at the time any label when they were making so much money from a number one song that they would just pay for those plaques and send them to you and every writer would get it everybody in the band would get it now you don't get none of that anymore. Yeah. You don't get statues. You don't get, you can buy them. And I'm just like, well, I don't have any place for those 30 that I already own. I'm, I'm yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, keep them in a museum or do something with them. Like, get, you, know, you know what, you know, I want. <laughs> well, there's, there's one that I, that I do have up. And, and to me, it's probably the most unique one that I have. So let's get it started. Was used on toothbrushes. I don't know if you remember. They released these toothbrushes for kids. They had a button on it, and it put when you put the toothbrush 
in your mouth and you press the button, it would play that song. So you're supposed to brush your teeth for the duration of the song. Oh, wow. So it was very popular because the kids would like actually brush correctly. That's hilarious. I have a pack for selling 3 million toothbrushes. <laughs> wow. That's the that's one. Pretty impressive. Because it's like, <laughs> that, that's going to be hard to top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of toothbrushes. That's yeah. crazy. That's pretty cool. So I was going to say, like, you've you've definitely accomplished a lot. Obviously, you've been quite successful. Would you give any tips to somebody who's trying to be a, a lifelong musician, somebody who's trying to just re- make income as a musician? Do you kind of have to jump around from project to project to kind of find places to make income? Or, sh- or should they stick with one thing until they, you know, get it to where they want it to be? Or what would be your advice there? My first advice is don't do it. <laughs> Run. Run. Go work construction. Anything else. <laughs> Truly, it's a passion project now. There is no income in music anymore. Yeah. When's the last time you bought a record? Uh, yesterday, actually. I bought five of them, but that's I'm very I, rare. So, <laughs> Vinyl or? Vinyl, yeah. Okay, that's different. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, it used to be where everyone would have to buy something. So, yeah. You and would, that's one of my gripes with the music industry right now is that everybody gives away their music for free on these streaming services that don't pay them crap back. I'm like, you don't have to do it that way. Like your customers, if they're truly your fans will buy your stuff. If you don't let them get everything for free. It's you just have to be creative. It's truly is a passion project now. And to think that you're going to actually pick up an instrument and make an income from that. It's virtually impossible now. Now, it does still happen because it is now it's to me, it's exciting. It's kind of like the wild, wild west. So you have these kids that are becoming millionaires on TikTok and they don't they have never even written a song longer than a couple seconds. Yeah. You know, and then they Nick, the the drummer for Cairo Knife Fight, my partner in Cairo Knife Fight, he just did a session at East West in L.A. for a TikTok star that paid for a Tesla cash wow and he's like man this kid has never even written a full song this is his first 10 full songs wow and he's doing a record at east west that he's paying <laughs> high dollar for he's like this is a completely different world that we're living in a completely different music industry and the problem is there isn't really no music industry anymore yeah even if you to get signed nowadays, you have to have done pretty much all the work already. Yeah. So, you have to be famous and popular already. Yeah. You have to have crazy numbers on, on all your social media. You have to have selling out everything. And then what's the comp- record company come do? Give you a 360 deal. That means that they own everything and they're going to. Everything vertically too. So yeah. anything that you branch off to horizontally, whatever, they're going to take some money from that too. And, and so it's it's a different world. And so my advice is it used to be most commonly when I was growing up, you would see it in movies. And I was told many times, don't have a second master. If you want to do this music industry thing, you do not have a backup plan. You do not have a job that takes you away from it because that's that 10 hours that you work at that job. That's 10 hours you could have been building. Sure. That's no longer the case. You got to be able to afford to do this. So you yeah. have, to have <laughs> a job that pays. If you want to do it at a high level, that means you got to do your own content. You got to record your own stuff. You got to post it. You got to promote it. You got to do everything. You have to be your, the label. 
how are you going to do that if you don't have either mom and dad's money, a trust fund, or a yeah. job? Yeah. And and that's what it takes nowadays. Even even for me, um, for me, like my wife and I right now have invested basically our future and our savings and everything into this passion project I have, my band. Yeah. She believes in it that much, and I believe in it that much that we've put everything into it. And yes, we've been offered and we've had multiple conversations with labels, but I just don't want to go that route because you're giving up so much. Yeah. And so we we are in negotiations right now with an investor because then since it's only two people, you're only giving a percentage of the band away. And then you're still in control of the masters. You're still in control sure. of the vision of the band and which direction things are going to go. And since I've been in this industry for so long, I know exactly, I have so many relationships. What do I need a label for? Exactly. Eventually you'll have to go there because that's the way this industry is. And that's what's going on now. When you have these TikTok stars or social media stars that get really big and are selling out these massive venues, well, they're already bought out because you can't play Live Nation venues or AEG venues without doing a deal. Sure. And so you have to do a deal with AEG or Live Nation, and then now you're a part of the machine. Yeah. It's always, it's always going to end up there. But, you know, you can control how much you own and don't own nowadays where before it wasn't an option. Yeah. It, you had to do a record deal because that's just the way the business worked. Yeah. I mean, that, you were never going to get mass visibility if you were just trying to do it on your own back then. Like there was no way for people to find you. It was impossible. No, no it, it is impossible. I mean, look at Cairo, Cairo, Cairo and I fight has a, a video that organically with us not doing anything has 127 million views. Wow. That, that would be impossibility 20 years from uh, ago. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think YouTube was invented or started in 2004. So it literally would have been impossible. But yeah. even if YouTube existed, it would have been very, 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 very hard without a massive record label. No, you wouldn't get the visibility. You wouldn't get on MTV. You wouldn't get on VH1. Yeah. Those, were all, those platforms are still like the radio, terrestrial radio still reserved for major labels. Yeah, that's the old model. So you want to get on there, you have to have a, a record deal. Yeah. There's no way to get on terrestrial radio. That's why you turn on the radio in your car. Every album that you hear, every band that you're listening to, they're signed. Yeah, is it that is still saved for record label artists? Sure, and it's the last form of music income that is the same as it was, you know, in the fifties. Yeah. So if you get on terrestrial radio, then you're making that old school money. Yeah. Other than that, you're making pennies on a dollar. Yeah. And maybe so my, pennies, yeah. <laughs> fractions of pennies. My suggestion is, is be able to afford to do it. If you really want to do it, you got to be able to afford to do it. And you got to be so unique that it's in, indispensable. So yeah. if you sound like someone else, you're not going to go far. Yeah. If you're like, oh, I get it all the time when we have people that, oh, he sounds like Bruno Mars. What are the labels going to say? Well, we have Bruno Mars. Why would we want another yeah. Bruno Mars? <laughs> yeah. We got that guy. He's doing great. <laughs> yeah. He's doing great for us. We don't need a carbon copy. 
yeah and so yeah. being unique is the most important thing you you got to do something that no one else is doing i mean look at what i'm doing my band people come to my shows and they're like you're an idiot because i bring a whole music store with me to those shows yeah. <laughs> just to be able to pull off this two-man band so it doesn't sound like a two-man band yeah one of the things that's happening there's a lot of two-man bands but they're having issues playing live because the promoters once the album does really well then they start performing live then the promoters are like that don't sound like the record and yeah. that's not a very exciting show so they're getting dropped by yeah. booking agencies because it's like okay that's not exciting so i knew that going in and so i had to make cairo and i fight something that's really exciting to see live and we get more fans because of our gear than we do the actual music <laughs> yeah i was going to mention that you have one of the most insane rigs i've ever seen your amp setup your pedal board setup everything is like i don't know it's like watching amazon droids or drones or whatever like work between themselves and like figure out how the music playing and i know it's like part of your secret stuff but i mean that's just one of the most insane things I've ever seen where like some, like the amps will automatically play certain parts of the songs and then they'll pair up. And it's like, yeah, that's wild. Like, and then your, your pedal board looks like, I don't know. It's like Blade Runner or something. You open it up and you're just like, okay, well that's not something you see every day. <laughs> well, and it's, here's a perfect example of your question. The question you asked me, what's your advice? You got to think in that realm you have to yeah. think 10 years ahead of time the pedal board you're talking about i'm already seven versions ahead yeah. of what you've seen on social yeah. media yeah <laughs> and so i'm constantly reinventing myself and when we finished we recorded 22 songs at dave Grohl's 606 studios on the sound city board once i was done with that i already have rechange that pedal board for whatever's coming next because it can't sound like what's on that record yeah that's that's dead that's put to bed now i'm yeah. moving on to the next chapter of and it all starts with that rig and that pedal board so you keep enhancing it you keep exploring and just don't stop being it you know you're only limited by your own creativity i have an enormous amount of creativity yeah that pedal board was a design based on um it was just need you know i would do shows with with nick and i basically copied the original guitar players formula for the two-man band and then started expanding on that yeah i saw deficiencies in his design and then i'm very lucky that one of my very close friends is dave friedman so I'd be able to go to Friedman's shop and say, hey, I want to do this, this, and that. He's like, well, that doesn't exist. You can't do that. I was like, okay, well, can we design something to do it? Yes, give me about two weeks. And then he'd think about it and he'd call me and he's like, all right, I think I got it figured out. Now come here and show me what you're trying to do. And so there's a lot of that in that pedal board where there's things in there that you can't buy off the shelves that Dave and I are creating based on uh, – you know, just a need. Like I'm telling him, I want to do this. Okay. Well, there's no way to do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's figure it out. And <laughs> they learned how to charge phones wirelessly. We can figure this out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's funny because if you watch Dave's podcasts, his tone, his it's called tone talk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
they have a feature where you can buy questions and it goes to the front of the line and it gets gotcha. shown in the air. And so one of the questions that he gets asked a lot is like, what's the most difficult rig build that you've ever done? It's mine. And he's always saying that. And he's like, and you guys don't even know. I already have all the pieces and parts for his next rig. And it's the most insane thing I've ever <laughs> even seen. He's like, I've had it here for six months and I'm afraid to start it because it's going to be so much work that and so many possibilities of mistakes that yeah it's it's just an enormous build and it's it's not a size thing it's okay it's when i'm doing the things that i do these crazy things that i do with with cairo technology happens and now i can do more yeah. and so i want to add that to that so that i have more options for the future and for me, it's always about the future. It's always about thinking. I always say this 10 years in advance. You have to be 10 years in advance. You have to know what your records are going to sound like four albums from now or yeah. what you want them to sound like. So you can start building towards that. Yeah. You have to know what your art's going to look like, what your stage show, if you ever get to the point where, oh my God, we have a budget now and I want it to look like this and this. You have to have that. Yeah. If you rely on, even when you had creative directors at a label, you know, 20 years ago that were handling all that for you, a person like Will wasn't listening to them. Yeah. He was creating all that on his own, drawing, you know, on napkins and showing that to the creative director. I want this. I don't care yeah. what you want. I want this. If you don't have that attitude, you're going to drown and you're going to, you're, you're not going to be able to compete with yeah. what they have. That's what you're yeah. competing with. You're competing with a whole team at a label that gets paid. A, one person gets paid to give it a look. Another yeah. person gets paid to create that look. That's what you're competing with. Yeah. And you have to, I mean, I, I think, I think that's one of the biggest things that most people in indie bands or rock bands, or even like just smaller, you know, time, time, uh, kind of bands in general is that, they think they have to copy what's already out there to sound like what's already out there. It's like, no, you got to do something so different that you get noticed out of all this other stuff that sounds exactly like what's on the radio right now. If you don't, they'll just take what's on the radio. Like it, I, it's a business thing too. If you just create a business of any kind and it's exactly like what's already out there, it's going to drown because it's, it's, there's already people doing it. Like you go start a fast food chain right now. You're going to compete against McDonald's, Burger King and Wendy's. Hell no. <laughs> like you got to do something different, right? It's, it's a hundred percent true. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that was most disappointing when I moved to Vegas is that everyone here is doing covers. No one. No, is not in Vegas. No, I mean, <laughs> that's the most common thing. Everyone's making a really good living playing their instrument. Yeah. But, you know, the first six months that I lived here, you know, you go out and you meet musicians that are like, oh, my God, you I remember watching you when I was a kid in high school. It's like, you got to come see my band. Yeah. when you normally you get that in another city you go see the band and okay well it, even if it's bad original music it's still original music yeah and i can't tell you how many times it's like come see my band it's like oh he's doing a bad cover of oh my god that's a terrible why would you do that it's a terrible version <laughs> of that song and then they're like why don't you ever come back and i'm like because you ain't doing anything that makes me want to come back and see anything it's like if yeah. you're gonna do a cover at least do your version. 
yeah. at least you know, like create a give it a different flavor or something. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. the most disappointing thing here. But I also see this is the way my brain works. I see that and I see opportunity. I'm like, oh, so this is wide open to people that actually create music that doesn't sound like anything else. Yeah. And that's what's happened with my band. People see my band once and what what happens is they go and tell 10 friends or they're like, you got to see this band. There's yeah. like nothing else that's going on in this city. Well, I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm just doing things the way that I grew up watching my favorite bands do. Yeah. And yeah, I'm very forward thinking, <clears throat> very creative and very, I have a crazy rig, but that crazy rig comes from need. You know, when I would do shows with, with Nick and I was using the original setup that started in New Zealand, it just didn't work for me because I wanted to take things to a different level. Sure. And so I started to figure out how to do that. And once I get to that level and I'm able to accomplish that, I'm going to want to go here. Yeah. <laughs> just the way it works for me. Yeah. I'm going to want to go this way and this way and create a broader spectrum of things that keep me interested and keep the listener interested. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of uh, another famous George, actually George Lucas, or maybe like a James yeah. Cameron in movies who yeah. always thought 30 years ahead, like my movie's got to be like so forward thinking that it's going to impress everybody today for what it is. And then 30 years from now, it's still going to hold up. You know, one of the things that of all we've had this stuff, this music finished, and we haven't released any of it. There's 22 new songs. We haven't released any of it because we're still negotiating with how we're going to release it. And we're, yeah. very, we're very close now. We're probably going to start releasing first quarter of next year. Nice. Um, but one of the most common things every label has said, every single label has said this, we don't even know how to categorize this. Yeah. <laughs> we don't even know what genre this is. We, and to me, that's frustrating to the manager. Yeah. For me, that's the best compliment you can give me. Yeah. The same thing happened to Tool. Same thing happened to bands like that, where it's like people are like, what is this? Yeah. You don't even know what this is. And you still to this day, you put on a Tool record for someone that's never heard Tool, and they're going to be like, wow, that's that's unique. I've never heard anything like that. Yeah. Or you put on Mars Volta, same thing. Those are the things that speak to me. I don't mm -hmm. want to sound like anything else yeah of course there's influences everywhere in my music but not it doesn't sound like anything else yeah when you blend it all together it's like it takes little pieces but it doesn't take it and make it the same right it's totally different yeah. now it's completely different and that's the most common thing that that we get when when they come see us live and when they hear the music and that yeah. is oh my god this is so different this is so good and look I'm biased because I'm in the band. I'm just repeating what is literally I just played on the fourth and everyone that came up to me kept saying that this is a constant thing that is being said. I don't know how two people can make that much noise. Yeah. I don't know what dude is so unique. It's so different. It's so music musicianship wise. They're like, Jesus Christ. But come <laughs> on, I've been doing this at the biggest stage possible for 24 years. Yeah, and that's the other thing that most people don't understand. They see this massive rig behind me, and you know, for the places we're playing for the for the time being, you know, the, people come it, in. It fills the entire stage. 
Yeah, and people are like, oh, please, come on. That's over. <laughs> I was like, bro, but I don't play here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is my bro. everyday rig for not these places. Yeah. <laughs> this is not what I didn't build a rig to live here. Yeah. I built a rig that I can use 20 years from now when we're playing stadiums. Yeah. It's it's not about this right now. Yeah. Like I'm having to downgrade my rig constantly to accommodate the fact that when you are playing smaller venues like we are right now, most of the time, engineers that are working there do not have the knowledge or the ability to mix a louder band. Yeah. You know, that is a lost art nowadays. And, and it's it's heartbreaking to me as a rock fan that the most common, one of the things we get a lot is like, oh, my God, I felt your music in my clothes. I was like, yeah, that's the way it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> You used to go see Sabbath or Motorhead, you'd go home with your ears ringing. Yeah, yeah. That's the way it used to be. Nowadays, you know, you got all this modeling going on and no one has stage volume and it makes the job super easy for the engineer. All they got to do is turn up the vocals, turn yeah. up the drums. That's it. Yeah. And they don't have to work. I mean, could you imagine when Hendrix was around? <laughs> playing with those stacks and there was the PAs weren't strong enough. Yeah. And so that became a talent for people that were mixing front of house. If you went and saw a good quality sound, that guy would always have a job because yeah. he was, he could figure out the right frequencies to make the vocal mic cut through Hendrix's wall of sound. Yeah. And same thing for the drums, same thing for the bass or keys or whatever the makeup of the band was that doesn't exist in these small venues yeah even the rig i have now i i called uh friedman and and was like bro i'm tired of, of arguing with soundman so you can't change it you can't change it that's the that's the the beauty of your band and i'm like no i'm not changing it but just give me 20 watt amps yeah. so that changes my volume by 50 percent, and that's what i'm going to do for right now one by 10, 12, you know, small cabinets, 20 watt amps until we have our own sound man that can actually compensate for the yeah. stage volume. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with your guys' band, it's it's because there's no bass player. So you're driving all the sound except for drums and vocals. And, and yeah. you know, I was going to say, you know, you're thinking like, uh, you know, Mick Jagger, for example, who when he would play bars back way back in the early 60s and late 50s or whatever it was when they first started, he'd be running around dancing, doing Mick Jagger, what he does on stage at, you know, 60,000 person yeah. stadiums now. He was doing that in bars. So if you're not willing to commit to that now, don't ever think that you're going to be able to do it later. Your 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 oh. abilities and your presence and your your psychology of where you would want to be with your music isn't going to suddenly switch on when you become famous. You don't just change like that. So no, think actually, about it kills exactly what, what's that it kills bands because they don't they don't have the ability to be able to survive there because yeah. they weren't thinking about that already yep when you get to the bigger stage all of a sudden you have to be that much bigger yeah to be able to entertain someone <laughs> people are that, paying 150 dollars now for your shows not yeah. 12 or whatever <laughs> exactly you have to think bigger and think you know how do i make it bigger splash because we have a bigger stage i have a great Mick jagger story Go ahead. So we were on the road opening up for U2 and um, 
uh, the Black Eyed Peas were, and they asked us to uh, to do Where's the Love on the 25th anniversary of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They performed, okay. and so we flew in their plane to New York, and that's where it was taped. And we were at SIR rehearsing, and so for that song, it was Mick Jagger, uh, Fergie did a, a, a duet with Mick Jagger and then the peas did where's the love. And mm -hmm. that was that medley that they did, uh, during that. And you can see it online. Sure. Performances out there. So when I was in SIR, all of you two's gear from the stage, the big gear is in SIR. And that was a kick for me just to watch edge and his, I think it was his B rig, which still <laughs> sane. And, and, you know, there's a perfect example. Edge has been thinking this way his whole career. And look at yeah. it over the years. Even his name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look at over the years. He didn't, as they created more music, those pedals had to go into this rig. So the rig grew and grew and grew and grew. And now it's this massive thing. You know, I don't think he uses that rig anymore. But when he was using it, it was insane to be even near it. It was yeah. the most insane rig ever built. And so I'm standing next to that. It's pretty loud. And Will is like, I need more in my ears. I can't hear anything. And Fergie, I need more in my ears. I can't hear anything. When Mick Jagger sang, he projected over everything. I was just wow. like, oh, my God. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> he didn't ask for anything. He just grabbed the mic, and he was louder than the band louder than every singer louder than anything in the room and i'm like that's why you're mick jagger yeah exactly you don't and need anything you're doing on your own yeah and it reinforces that like that genius of the the that having that in your ability and your kind of psyche psyche or conscious the whole time just like this is what i'm going to do when i get there because i'm going to do it now and yeah. i'm just going to build my career off of what i'm doing now and it's just going to get better and better but it's always going to be there well, he, you know, when you read or talk to them, because I've had, you know, the, the the blessing of having conversations with guys that are legends like that. For them, it was never if it was just yeah, one. exactly. It was it was never, a path yeah. <laughs> they were going go, they were going down it regardless of whatever's going on. Yeah, I speak the same way now. I for me, it's not when we're going to play there. It's 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 not if we're ever going to get to that point. It's when. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care about the right now. I don't care about like I'll keep building and I'll keep, you know, creating music and I'll keep playing and people will pay attention. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that point. Yeah. You know, it's just navigating how we're going to get to that point, not yeah. whether we're going to get to that point. Yeah. And speaking of which, I know we we're kind of running over time, but we'll try yeah. to kind of wrap it up a little quickly here. But you don't have to rush because this is the Internet. We'll talk yeah. as long as we have to, as long as you're OK to stay around. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, we had been talking uh, right before this because uh, I had mentioned or I took a drink of my football cup. And one of the biggest things that you did is is in, in that same kind of vein is it was when it was going to happen. Right. You guys actually played the Super Bowl halftime show with the Black Eyed Peas. Mm -hmm. You actually even played the Grey Cup halftime show, which is the Canadian National Football uh, or the Canadian Football League uh you know, end game, this, the championship game. So what was that like? Cause that's, that's not just a, you know, a, st a stadium full of people. That's, you know, 300 million people worldwide watching that broadcast live as well. Was that different? Were you guys super pressured for that? 
it's a billion. It's over yeah, a billion. There you go. <laughs> they tell you before you take the stage, like you're waiting in the same locker room as the as the the you wait in the tunnel that the the team runs yeah. out of. So when you do the pregame show, so when when the peas did the halftime show, we had already done um two pregame shows with the black eyed peas and I think three pregame shows with Fergie. So sure. for those, if you like next Super Bowl, if you start watching at the beginning of the day at like eight, nine in the morning, they have bands playing all day long. Sure. And that's at the same stadium. And it's the same system that they use for the halftime show, much yeah. smaller version of it. So you're basically there all day. And so I did two of those before the halftime show and you would wait in the tunnel so the pregame shows to me way funner because i'm a huge sports fan yeah halftime is amazing but the pregame show we were the band that played right before kickoff yeah so we did it one year where it was us earth wind and fire played right after um um uh bocephus he did uh actually no that I was, was say that's a bit of, that's a bit of a weird mix, but yeah, no, the, the 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 eclectic mix that happens on on Super Bowl Sunday yeah. is amazing. <laughs> like the the second time we did it with Earth Wind and Fire, they played with us, and then we we came on right after Charlie Daniels. Okay, <laughs> so he played Devil Went Down to Georgia. Then we came on and did Let's Get It Started, mm -hmm. and so we waited right in the tunnel where the players come out perform for basically three minutes and right before you go on you're like you ready all right have fun one point something billion people are watching you <laughs> and you go out there you do that you come back and you have to wait in the tunnel and all the teams run out for the game that's like i'm like yeah that's awesome so the the funny thing is that year that we did it uh tom brady and the patriots played philly the the Eagles when Owens was on the Eagles team, yeah. And the Eagles come out and they're like, "Oh my God, Fergie, Earth, Wind, and Fire! Oh my God!" <laughs> they're not even thinking about the game. And, I, and yeah. then the Patriots come out and they're like, "Military!" Yeah. They don't look to the right, they don't look to the left, they look straight ahead, and they're like, "Oh, and I'm like, they're gonna win." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are too excited to be here. These guys yeah. are like military. They're gonna win. So just to get something straight, though. I did not play the halftime show. I was oh, there. okay. Okay. I was there, and the NFL did not allow the band to participate because the NFL gotcha. wanted to hire um, marching drum and school band look. Gotcha. The piece. So there was like a hundred marching instruments on the field, and they didn't want the band on there. But I had to record. So all the content, all that's pre-taped. I don't know if you know. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so all the content I had to record, including Slash's solo. So <laughs> Slash hits me up, like, I think the week before. He's like, hey, man, I got to record the, all my parts and the solo for that. It's like, I don't really want to do that. Can you do it for me? <laughs> and so the safety track, if his wasn't on, on Super Bowl Sunday, because they have to have that safety track in order if any of the vocal mics or anything, it's literally it stops such, working. Yeah. Such a quick turnover that things can happen. 
if that doesn't work, then they just turn on that track and the show still goes on. So if his amp didn't work, it was me. Yeah. It wasn't Slash. And That's I was funny. I was so bitter that day. I'm like, I'm in the audience. I'm I'm in uh Fergie's <laughs> box. I'm watching it and I'm just like, this sucks. If his amp does not work, it's me. And now no one's gonna ever know <laughs> that it's me. <laughs> did you know if his amp actually ended up working? I'm assuming it did. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but he did. We had a long conversation after that. Uh, at at the we stayed at the same hotel. So after the whole game was over and everybody had gone to the after parties, I sat with him in the lobby and he was like, "Why'd you have to play such a good solo, man?" It's like I wouldn't have been able to mimic that shit if. You, and we had, <laughs> had a laugh. Like, well, I wasn't gonna make it. I I try to make it sound a little bit like you. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, but it sounds like it's like really cool how much it does sound like me. But you added some of your shit in there, and it's like. I wouldn't have been able to do that. That's funny. <laughs> Come on, Slash. You're Slash. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Just give it a couple practices. You can't just go out there drunk and expect to do it on the first try. <laughs> That's he, man. Hanging with him is is so much fun, and he's like really an amazing person. And it's amazing to like walk around with him now. Yeah, because he's completely sober, and people will come up to him all the time, and they'll tell him when they saw him or when they met him yeah and how he responds is amazing he 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 says was i nice to you and i've been next to him when both sides happen they'll be like no actually you were an ass and he's like i apologize i don't remember that i was yeah. really not a healthy person back then and then it, the other side were no you were a sweetheart okay great you know, it's, and it's amazing that he has to do that. And he, he doesn't remember. I mean, if you read his book, and I've had conversations with him about it, he really doesn't remember a lot from that era. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's it's. I mean, you think about it when you're literally traveling the world, waking up in different cities every single day for eight years straight or whatever. It's pretty tough to keep all that stuff together. And you're around people in different cities that aren't even people that you've met before that are supposed to be managing your career, your band or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, I don't even know who you are. Like, how am I supposed to know all these people? But the record labels set that all up. So I'd be very strange. I do it still to this day. I mean, I, I travel nonstop and every, it's, it's, it's groundhouse. Yeah. Everything looks the same. You're in, you know, the only difference is the slight differences between the hotels yeah, the look the same. The airports look the same. The stages look the same. They set it up the same way every night. You don't yeah. change production uh, values until a new album. So you're looking at Groundhog's Day every day. You yeah. literally the same ramp. The backstage area looks the same. <laughs> Your yeah. room looks the same. And the only thing that changes is the room at the hotel. If you're in a different chain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Marriott's every night. It looks exactly the same. So yeah. it's Groundhog's Day every day. It, it, I, I completely know why he doesn't understand. Then you add alcohol and drugs to that mix. Oh, yeah. Forget about it. There's no way you'll remember. No way. Like, I don't yeah. remember. It's, uh, it's amazing to me that I remember. My wife says this all the time. I don't know how you do that. I don't forget room numbers. Don't know why. I don't need. I, I forget them literally every time I'm traveling. I'm like, I don't. I don't remember the room number. I remember 
I remember kind of just the general area and start walking towards it. I'm like, it's gotta be one of these four doors though. I have no idea which one it is. I don't, that's the one thing I don't forget. I never, I only take the, the, the room key with me because I don't need to, I, I see it once and I'm like, Oh, I'm in 475. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, and that's me and Jorge. Jorge is my alter ego when I'm drunk. <laughs> Jorge remembers as well. I don't know why. <laughs> that's funny. So I, I do want to mention one last, well, a couple of last things, but one, one kind of more deeper subject is, you know, it's not all being successful and being, you know, uh, you know, a very, I guess, well-traveled musician isn't all it's cracked up to be. And there's been things that have been setbacks and there's bumps in the road and I won't get into the exact part of it, but essentially you, you had a lawsuit against uh, the management of the black IPs, I believe for uh, tax uh, management and, and a legal dispute there. This seems to happen way too often uh, where people's management just doesn't pay taxes or they, you know, they they basically funnel their income away from what they're supposed to pay or whatever. So do you have any advice for bands like even just like on a, on a, on a minor level, what they should be looking at when they're actually starting a band? Because they're essentially starting a business and they just don't know it. Yeah, it's it's very, very true and very important. And, and what what. The thing that happens that creates this, and it's a constant thing that happens all the time, is the band goes from, so it wasn't manager, it was uh, the actual accountant. Okay. So the accountant, you know, the only person that had an accountant before the, the, the Black Eyed Peas were big was Will. Yeah. The only He's the only person that had enough money to actually merit having an accountant and was so busy that you need someone to actually pay the normal bills because you just don't have the time. Yeah. And so if you are lucky enough to get a hit and then it propels you into being on the road for three years without coming home, which is what happened to us, you go from, and remember, this was during a time when there was no internet, it was dial up. And so there was no way to pay your bills online. Yeah. And so everyone had to get an accountant. I just went with, will's guy because i had a relationship with him already when will was paying me to be in the studio i was the mm-hmm. only guy getting paid to show up to the studio every day to work with will and yeah. so i was getting my money from him and then as soon as i got my first number one song i had writing on that first check i didn't want to make a mistake and actually just waste that money myself yeah and so i hired him and I thought I was doing the right thing. Hell, my parents told me I was doing the right thing. They loved him. We would see him at shows all the time and everything. And he spoke at my wedding. This is how wow. nasty that whole situation was. And that cost me 10 years of my life. I was in wow. that battle for 10 years. And that's why I left California. I was so bitter about what California put me through. That, And I, I could have bought three houses for what they made me pay. Because yeah. I proved that it wasn't my fault, but they didn't care. It was like, no, yeah. it's your debt. You shouldn't have hired them. I'm like, but wait, I didn't do this. They yeah. didn't care. Nope, your debt, your number, your responsibility. I do understand that, but come on. I mean, Why are was- you hiring a professional to do it if it's your debt regardless? Like, it's like they got to have some sort of professional responsibility. So my my advice is be in control of everything. Do not, I don't care how much you trust that person. Do not sign your own checks, be in control of everything. And yeah. it, because 
you, I, I know three other people that are doing the same thing right now. They're going through the same problem. And it's, it's just because if your band all of a sudden does what happened with the peas where we were on our last tour, we, Jimmy, I've been told, Will, if you don't have a number one by the end of this tour, we're dropping the band. Wow. So that song went to number one in July of a three-month tour that started in June. It was the middle of the run, and we're like, oh, man, save every penny because this is this is over. Yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, we never came back. Three months turned into five years. Yeah. That turns into this situation where, oh, where am I going to live? Where's my car going to park? <laughs> yeah, store everything because you don't know where well, it's going to be. <laughs> literally, when we came to do the Staples Center show, when that tour was opening, uh, we were opening at Staples Center, we had three days in L.A. and everyone did the same thing. Everyone got like three storage units and everything went in there. And I was lucky enough to sublet my studio house and so that was taken care of. But literally, it went from me being paying my own bills to me just handing over the keys to this guy. Yeah. For the next five years was paying everything. And I would get phone calls. And, I, and all of a sudden, my account would go from $20 to zero. I'm like, whoa, what happened? Oh, taxes, man. And OK, so I'm good. Taxes are paid. Yes. OK. And you go on. And you just continue to work because I was working at the time. I literally was on the road 300 days out of the year. Yeah. So if not more. And so when you get home and what happens with, with taxes, it's a common practice for every uh, CPA to send more money to the government, more, and then they do the taxes later yeah. and then get a big refund. And so what happened in my case is he did that for five years and you only have five years to recoup that money. So for example, uh, if you send, you know, $10,000 over what you really owed, you have five years from that point. And this was back when it happened to me. I don't know if those rules have changed. Yeah. I don't know if it's like three years now. Yeah. But you only have a certain amount of time to reclaim that money, file your taxes, and then they'll give you the refund and apply yeah. the money you sent. Yeah. Money wasn't applied, nor did I get the refund. It was just gone. Yeah. And so that started that whole incredibly difficult case to finish because, you know, I got a, it was on my honeymoon that I got my attorney called me and told me, I have really bad news for you. You owe the federal government $665,000. Wow. And so then it started me trying to show them that not only has the music industry changed, I'm never going to make that kind of money again. No one buys yeah. CDs. Yeah. Like when the P's, when Where's the Love went to number one, we were selling 1.3 million physical units a, a week. Yeah. Physical units. We outsold Eminem. That's how we got to number one. Yeah. Imagine the numbers that brings in as compared to now, where you don't sell yeah. a single physical unit. You know how hard it was to convince the government that that doesn't exist no more. Yeah. I'm you're like, like oh. no, you're still you're still in a famous band. You still make yeah. no. That that's not the same business model now. <laughs> no, it's not. And. Yeah. And most people don't realize that streaming numbers do not go to writers. They go to the artist. Yep. They, the major money is made by the artist. 
and it's not major money, but the bulk of that money, the bulk of the little money, yeah, <laughs> yeah the bulk of the little money goes to the actual artists, not yeah. the writers or the producers. That's why you see the the story that's all over the internet all the time. The person that wrote "Wrecking Ball" for Miley Cyrus made like ten thousand dollars on that song because she's the writer. The rest of it went to Miley. Yeah, streaming numbers go to the artist. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. Obviously, I don't want to keep you here all night. We we got to eat dinner. It's it's getting late, but uh, <laughs> um, I know we'll add some links. I know you guys have some shows coming up. I think you even have a show. That, well, well, this will come out after these shows air, but uh, I think you have one coming up Saturday, which I'm going to be coming to you at uh, downtown, the usual, uh, the usual place downtown in Las Vegas. Here, um, do you have any other shows coming up for the rest of the year in any of the in any of the projects? Yeah, we have two sh- two shows um, for Cairo. So it's uh, the usual place on the fifteenth, and then Pappy and Harriet's on the twenty third. Okay, that's in uh, Pioneer Town. The Peas we do. Uh, let's see, we play the L.A. Coliseum on the twenty first. We do the Disney Christmas special November third and fourth, and then we do uh, three iHeart Radio uh, Jingle Ball events in Dallas. Uh, no, Fort Worth, Sunrise, Florida, and Tampa, Florida. That wraps oh, nice. up the year. And I think we're going to Qatar for FIFA, the World Cup. Wow, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> well, we've done, I, it, you know, I should have said it when you mentioned the Super Bowls and the Great Cup. Those were all amazing, but we've also done uh, three World Cups. Uh, this year alone, I've done three Formula One races. Wow, yeah, that's massive audience too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it's so cool to do those. There's a lot of money in that Formula One there. <laughs> Man, it, it is it's insane. You think the Super Bowl is rich? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like everybody's showing up to yachts and just partying like billion dollars just down the drain, whatever. <laughs> oh, it, it's crazy because it, you know, we're gonna see it here in Vegas uh next, next year, year, November yep. twenty twenty three, and you'll see the amount of like Formula One has a different audience. Formula One is like sheiks and prince and yeah. it's like crazy oil money. And it's like, oh, my God, this is insane. Like the amount of Ferraris and Lamborghinis and everything that you you see. In Private here, jets and all that stuff. Yeah. But people for Formula One races, they fly their cars. Wow. Because they have custom one, one, one of a kind builds that they fly to every Formula One race they go to. And I asked one of the guys, like, dude, how much do you spend on that? He's like, it's actually not that very, that expensive. I'm like, well, what's not expensive? He's like, oh, for every flight that we fly our car, it's like 20 grand. It's pretty expensive. I mean, it's, it's half of a regular car. <laughs> yeah. For, for us, yes. For a chic that's worth, you know, $200 billion, yeah. that's $25. <laughs> yeah. Like, ah, 20000 what's that? It's like nickels. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... And you know what's funny is most people in Vegas don't know what they're about to get. Um, yeah. I talk to a lot of people when we do those Formula One events uh, that I'll see after parties or at the shows. And and they don't realize that these people come in and if your house is anywhere near the race course, they'll give you like a whole year's worth of rent or mortgage just to take over your, your place so they could be right next to the track. That's crazy. And this happens every race anywhere in the world. If your house is next to the track, they'll literally knock on your door, a representative, <laughs> and be like, how much is your rent? We'll pay for two years. Get out. That's, that's <laughs> crazy. Just so they can hang out for a week. <laughs> yeah, just so 
so they can hang out for a week and that's their home base next to the track and they that's what crazy. they're looking for is to be able to like wake up and see the the like warm-ups because the, you know they they even right before the the race starts 30 seconds before the race they're still warming up the tires and taking sure. one lap and yeah really interesting to be there right before they race yeah well very cool i uh will put a bunch of the, the links to your guys's music yeah. both in the back ips and cairo knife fight into the show notes below this episode uh, i do want to ask one question is just yeah. one album one musician one artist what new music would you recommend before we go today Ooh, damn that's a hard question <laughs> uh new new music I, this is see i can't recommend this album the album that's speaking to me right now it's weird because it's it's speaking to me for different reasons production and guitar playing is the new billy alice record but everyone loves that record so that's kind of cheating yeah um my favorite guitar player right now and i'll just say guitar player is joey landreth no not a lot of people know who joey landreth is in his okay. band you can search him through his personal uh, named Joey Landreth, and then he has another band with uh, Landreth, uh, uh, the Landreth brothers. Okay. Um, brothers Landreth. He's like, I would say, obviously the best gu slide guitar player in the world is Derek Trucks. Right below that is Joey Landreth. Okay. He's interesting. So amazing. And then he sings like a bird and he writes amazing music. It's just unbelievable but you know it's hard for me to answer that question because i go on deep dives man I, sure <laughs> i'm on a plane all the time and i'll sit on i only listen to music on title because yeah. it's uh higher fidelity and i'm a i'm a snob when it comes to i cannot yeah. listen to spotify because the sound sucks super so compressed much. yeah yeah and same thing for itunes um title to me is is the only thing i can listen to it in and you have to have the space on your phone because you're downloading the master quality yeah and so and it takes a lot long time to do that you have to so i'll sit here before a flight and i'll download 15 records that i'm deep diving it on yeah uh let, let's see i'll tell you what the last one is okay and that's one of the things about titles that they actually pay the artists like something yeah. like 15 times more what Spotify play, pays or something like that, which is pretty cool. This is a band that um, opened up for the P's at the Formula One uh, event, had no okay. idea who they were, but they were great. I don't know how, I don't know how, but they found me is the name of the band. That's the I name. I don't know how, but they found me. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> and and I, that's the last thing I downloaded on Title I've been listening to. Nice. Other, than, other than that, like I, I love the new Clutch record. You nice, know, very cool. Yeah, I'm a huge Clutch fan. Yeah. That's the career that I'm striving for with with Cairo. Is you know, Clutch is one of those bands that they just did things their own way, and it's still possible to do that. You just have to have something that people are going to want to come see. Yeah, exactly. Build it the old fashioned way, you know. When, as soon as you sell out 150, you move to the 300 seat place. As soon as you sell yeah. that, you move to the next. And that's what they did over the last, yeah. you know, 20 years that they've been around. Yeah. Now that 1,500, 2,000 person shows constantly, to me, maybe even more sometimes. Yeah. Depending yeah. on the city. And, but they still do it their own way. It's their label, yeah. their everything. Yeah. You know, 
that those bands inspire me a lot. Like I want a clutch career for Cairo. Yeah. And they don't just keep it to like the one genre. Like they don't just play like hard rock or whatever. They like mix in the country twang and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the new record they just released is way heavier than anything they've, they've done recently. Yeah. It's funny when you read the interview for that record, they're like, we wanted to make a dance record. It just turned out this way. Yeah, we, we forgot that we we're still clutch. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much, George, for being on the show today. Guys, make sure to go to the uh, show notes below this episode to check out his music. Obviously, you know the Black Eyed Peas, but make sure to go check out Cairo Night Fight as well because, you know, I, I, I'm going to go see him live this week and, and I'll report back because I'm sure my mind's going to be blown because I've seen some of the stuff online, but I know it's different in person. So make sure you go check that stuff out. And remember guys, the power by rock podcast is powered by our listeners. If you want to show some support, please be sure to subscribe and, uh, to the podcast and share it on social media as well. You can also make a donation to the podcast. If you'd like to help us keep uh, making some awesome episodes with great guests like George here, you can find that link in the show notes as well. You can find the full video interview on our YouTube channel and Spotify now as well. If you want to check out some of our articles, album reviews, lists, and interviews, go to poweredbyrock.com to read our absolutely free rocking blog. You can also find some merch and gear so you can pick up some items to play and look like a rock legend. That's our show for today. We'll see you soon again for the next episode. Until then, rock on. Supposed to be